0: Hello Keith Summers.
1: Hi Rebecca, how are you?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining me on the Balanced, Beautiful and Abundant podcast.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me.
0: It's great to see you. I know that you just traveled across the country. You drove from LA to Martha's Vineyard and you're making time to be on our show. So we're so excited to have you here.
1: I I am glad to be here. I wish I was as pristinely attired as you are but
0: <laughs> <laughs> well road trips can be kind of rough on the appearance so you know it's it's okay most of the people are going to be listening anyway so yeah. I want to tell my listeners a little bit about your background so Keith Summers is the founder and COO of the Keith A. Summers International Foundation he is a working actor a voiceover artist and a motivational speaker And his mission is to expand the perspective of young people globally and to equip them with the life skills necessary to fulfill a pro-social role within their respective communities. So that brings me to the first question. What is a pro-social role?
1: The exact opposite of (laughs) (laughs) anti-social. of the youth are just like you and I when we were younger they're dealing with numerous issues between their ears and those issues because a lot of the youth don't have the coping skills or the tools mm-hmm. to deal with a lot of them have socioeconomic issues they have biological issues they have familial issues and they're just doing the best they can just like we did
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, the whole part of being pro social is being part of being crafted into your community mm-hmm. in a positive, uplifting, you know, community supporting way. Yes. Body has an invaluable skill set, but they have to basically have that identified in most instances. And I know, God knows, I need it for myself.
0: Absolutely. That's great. I love that you define pro-social as the opposite of antisocial. That's awesome, and it's it's so great that you're mentoring them to find you know their voice and their truth because kids go through so much pressure these days. Uh, I know that you have a diversity project called Together. You have many projects, but I'm going to focus oh, on Together, better, which, which is, is your diversity daughter. project. So, what is the Black Lives? matter movement mean to you and what do you think it means to the kids that you mentor
1: um in the second grade i remember getting off the school bus running to the front door of my parents home and i couldn't wait to get inside and when i finally got unlatched into the front door by my mother and i get inside my mom noticed something was wrong and asked me keith are you okay and i said mom i'm fine there's no keith what's going on i said just leave me alone When my mom looked in my eyes, she basically asked me a life-defining question. She said, Keith, what is wrong? And I said, Mom, am I white? She said, why would you ask that? I said, well, because the black kids call me gray boy. They call me zebra. They call me mutt. My mom then said, who calls you that? I said, Mom, the black kids do. She said, wait till your father gets home. My dad is six foot seven, African American. My mom was five foot three, Italian and East Indian. (laughs) Okay. So the old saying, it takes one to know one. I've walked every step in the moccasins of a biracial existence. Mm -hmm. And seeing what's going on in a social justice perspective, I see a lot of things. I'm uniquely positioned to see because I'm mixed race. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of the justified resentment that comes from the mistreatment, the misogyny, the disenfranchisement, the undervalued, underprivileged on the African American side in this country. Yep. And I see the white privilege, the entitlement, the What's all the hubbub? What's all the big deal? Why do you have to act this way where they're completely clueless as to the rage, the resentment, the intestinal fortitude that cries out for a higher existence? And the higher existence is to be equal in value. They're not saying we're better than, they're not saying they're less than. We're, We're equal. To you like Martin Luther King said, I pray for the day that a person will be looked at from the content of their character more than the color of their skin. Yes. And the personification of that is true equal equanimity where everybody has the same value system. When you look at someone, the first thing you see is their character
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that is, gives us equality in the social level but in order to accomplish that drastic changes have to happen as many in my our programs say that when things remain the same things remain the same if nothing changes nothing changes so what we have to do is we have to go down to the foundation and change it
0: what would so, that be like? What, what is an oh, example of changing something drastically from the foundation?
1: Well, the old saying, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole loaf. It's a mm-hmm. biblical parable. Yep. A little bit of salt saltens the entire face of water. Mm-hmm. A little bit of cancer eradicates health. Yep. Right? Okay. A little bit of corruption. Amongst a lot of good people, it's still a corrupt system. Yes. Period. But most people, when you ask that question, they're like, oh, no, it's just a few bad eggs. No, there's a term called tacit authorization.
0: Can you repeat that?
1: There's a term known as tacit, Mm -hmm. T-A-C-I-T.
0: You're cutting out when it's such an interesting Uh word. I'm like, I don't need you to cut out when you say a a unique and interesting word.
1: You hear me now.: Okay,.: okay. Tacit? tacit authorization.
0: Authorization. Got it.
1: Tacit authorization is when you sit idly by and you watch somebody transgress and prejudice the rights of another, and you remain silent, you say nothing. Right. You take no proactive measure to abate or bring a cessation to that behavior.: Yes. That means you're tacitly authorizing that conduct. It's okay yeah. with.
0: You're it's complicit. Right. Yeah.
1: So in order to achieve that outcome, you have to get down to the causes and conditions at a foundational root level mm-hmm. and, re- and, and drastically, intentionally remove it all.
0: And how and do you propose we do that?
1: Start from scratch. I'm not trained in sciences, but... <laughs> I just know where the problem is. And if we are all mutually in, in agreement that this time you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater and start over and start over.
0: Yeah, because the Constitution said that a black person was what? Three fifths of a human.
1: And if right. everything
0: in our country is based on the Constitution, then there's right. corruption within the whole building of a system. And that's where we come up with systemic racism. And, you know, that kind of brings me to your personal story. I I don't think that you were in prison because of systemic racism, but I know that you experienced a system that has been used to oppress black people by having millions of black people be in jail. So um, do you want to share a little bit of your story about your experience with the prison system and how you ended up there?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, in 1986, I decided to relocate to California to pursue my dreams, my aspirations, and in, in the acting uh, part of the entertainment industry. And when I came out here, I came out with my addiction. I came out with the chemical alcohol addiction of drugs and alcohol. And I thought when I was relocating, I was leaving all of my problems behind. That was. My delusion.
0: Wherever you go, there you are, right?
1: Exactly. And in a short period of time, the exact causes of all that troubled me back in Pennsylvania were end up revisiting with a vengeance. The problems I was having in my relationships came back. The problems I was having in my financial health came back. The problem I was having physically came back, and most tragically, the consequence of my addiction culminated in me drinking alcohol, leaving a high-falutin celebrity restaurant on the famous Sunset Strip, where at almost 2 o'clock in the morning, I initiated a vehicular car accident where someone was tragically killed. And as a result of that, my conduct, the district attorney's office exercised their discretion in charge, not with vehicular manslaughter, but with murder. Mm. That was discretionary up to the female deputy district attorney at the time. And she elected to do the most severe punishment for me. In do you the,
0: think, sorry to interrupt, but do you think if you were a white man, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant man, that you would have had the same severity of sentence as murder? Would it, would it have been different in your personal opinion?
1: Not just my personal opinion. When I was incarcerated with great frequency, I would encounter Caucasian, blonde hair, blue-eyed inmates. Yeah. That when we showed each other the prosecution version of the offenses we committed And I would see Drop jaw excessive disproportionality in what they did in comparison to what I did Like four, five, six, seven people tragically killed uh-huh. In their actions, where tragically one person was killed in mine And they're getting two-year sentences. And some were leaving that day or the next day. Wow. After serving a year, barely two years, from the same county. Because a lot of times you talk to prosecutors like, well, you know, every state is different, every county is different, every city is different, every case is different. But when you have two people, both from the same state, both from the same county. Wow. And one person dies in one vehicular accident while under the influence of only alcohol and another person tragically kills four people under the influence of PCP, cocaine, methamphetamine, <laughs> marijuana and alcohol and they're getting 2 years and you're getting a life sentence slated to die in prison. Wow. Really don't have to be <laughs> a trained criminologist or a forensic to understand the disparity on comprehension.
0: So you're you were a victim of this systemic racism, but in my in my book and in my teachings, I like to say from victim to victor, and that's right. exactly what you do. So Let's talk about your journey of what gave you the idea or the impetus to actually study the law and become your own attorney. And how did that journey help you get out of uh, prison so much earlier? That That is an incredible, you know, just triumph of the human spirit. And that is so inspiring. So will you share that with our listeners?
1: Well, after all of my direct challenges to the conviction were denied, Not because the truth, not because I had a improper perspective of what I thought the truth was, and therefore the courts weren't going to back my play by saying, you know what, you think this is deserving of reversal of your conviction for murder, and we are telling you it's not. That's not what happened. The courts would, 90% of the time, reject the case, never get down to the facts, that mitigated the case from being an involuntary manslaughter versus murder, and then would reject it, forcing me to go to the next court. After almost 10 years of that exercise of insanity, I was left no other viable alternative but to petition the California Board of Parole Hearings to secure my release. But in like fashion, the same way the courts turned a blind eye mirror, so did the California parole board. They refused to acknowledge my rehabilitation. They refused to acknowledge the strides I made towards arresting my drug and alcohol addiction, treating and becoming recovered, living out the recovered time from day one to the present day. So I was left no alternative but... To petition the courts to intervene in my unending, unceasing, lifelong incarceration because I wasn't sentenced to life without the possibility. I was sentenced to life with the possibility.
0: With the possibility of what? Release or parole?
1: Release, release to parole.
0: Wow. Yep. You know, a lot of people, Keith, would have just, after 10 years of fighting this and getting nowhere, the average person would have just given up and they would have been resigned to like a life in, in prison and they would have just been, I'm just a victim of this systemic racism. They're not going to give me a shot because I'm a black man. You know, nobody ever gets out. What gave you the fight and the courage to keep going and to figure out a way through this corrupt system to find your way out?
1: Um, my love. For my power, who I call love, who, who I call love, for God. higher beautiful. Higher um, power. Love for my family, my father, my mother, my brother, my best friend, Dorothy, uh, my best friend, Elliot, and Bruce, I and mean, I had people out here that loved me, and they let it be known with great frequency and consistently throughout my 18 and a half years that I spent with a life sentence in prison. And of all the screw ups I've done, there'd be no greater screw up once I got clean and sober than to cease intentionally, deliberately screwing up. Mm -hmm. And what I mean is, when a person is active in their addiction, they're at what we call in the program, step two, insanity. Because step two is you came to believe that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. And if one has to be restored, that means you're not there. So from that insanity, the actions, your comprehension, and your perspective of yourself and the world is so skewed that you're legally, clinically insane. Mm -hmm. Or if you want to be politically correct about it, not be so harsh on yourself, you use the term operating from an impaired perception. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, once I arrested my drug and alcohol addiction, not taking chemicals into my system, I then started getting recovery between my ears. I started fixing the software programming that skewed and warped my perception. And once I got that rightly aligned, Now I'm operating from a rightly honed perspective of myself, the others and the world around me. I'm now consciously aware of the choices I'm making. I'm consciously aware that I'm able to get down to the cause and conditions of the feelings that I'm having. And then I can start the repair work. There's a saying that the mind that creates the problem is ill-equipped to fix the problem absent new information and the application of that information. So if I'm sitting in this, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get from where I am to where I need to be. Then there you, there in lies the start of the rebirth. You get down on your knees and you say, help me. I don't know. I am willing. I am able. My life depends upon it. Help me. dormant forces will come alive. People will come out of nowhere and will appear and will give you the help you need. And I was desperate, like an astronaut with his tether cord cut. I was (laughs) flailing about space and God said, don't worry, son. I brought you in here. I will, I will save you.
0: So your surrender, you totally surrendered because you were, you felt stuck in a system that was corrupt. You didn't see a way out. So you just kept surrendering one day and then you had the epiphany or the insight I'm going to be my own lawyer and get myself out of here. So how did you even find access to the books and the law to be able to study it?
1: The universe brought those, those guerrilla litigants, those house attorneys, mm.
0: uh,
1: in my immediate social circle. They and came into they, the jail? Yes. They show, showed me how to get access to the law library. They showed me how to do this thing called shepherdizing. They showed me how to look up jurisprudence, the Code of Civil Criminal Procedure, Wigan's Law Journal. Um, how to do case references, how to use footnotes, how to you know look at um, uh, governor government codes, uh, business professions codes, and how to apply it. You know, get down to the cause and conditions of what they're saying versus what the truth is. The old saying there's three sides to every story yours, theirs, and the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Right. Well, same thing, same thing in law. The first
0: cold, staunch
1: reality I had come to is that truth is the first casualty in most courtrooms. Yes. Okay, let that settle for a minute.
0: Yeah, that's that's, Truth is yeah. the first
1: casualty in most courtrooms. It's that's not a it's truth. Yeah, we, we we're led to believe that the truth will prevail. That's a, that's a lie. It's a misnomer. The fact is, whoever presents the best case wins. Right. So, whether you, you're a attor- turn, if you're not, if you're guilty or innocent, that doesn't matter. It's can your attorney present your version of the story? So,
0: when and you if- went to court, You were your own attorney. Did you stand before the judge and the prosecutor? Did you stand before a jury? How many times Um, did you have to show up as your own attorney? And how did they finally let you out? This is an an incredible part of the story. I can just picture you there in the court as your own attorney with, like, an inmate outfit on. Like, I can't wait to see this movie. I know it's in the works. So it's going to be incredible. But explain how the whole courtroom scenario played out for our listeners. Oh, you're frozen, frozen again.
1: Well, yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. I'm on the public Wi-Fi here in Martha's <laughs> okay. Vineyard so I don't know how good it is. So um, I tried almost 30 cases, 30 cases in a state and federal court. And after- Wait, it me, that. It took me almost six years you hear me now?
0: Yes, six years. And how many times did you have to appear in court as your own attorney?
1: Um, I did it administratively. I did it on paper. Um, oh, okay. Every time I had to go through all three state courts and two of the federal courts. I ended up getting my relief at the second highest court in the United States government, the Ninth Circuit, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. I had a federal petition for writ of habeas corpus and I had a civil rights lawsuit. And both of, both of those got assigned three judge panels. Mm-hmm. So do you understand? My federal petition had a three judge panel and my civil rights lawsuit had a three judge panel. Okay. And for a life inmate, a state life inmate, because remember, the federal courts are for federal prisoners. Right. So you really have to evince a constitutional right violation to even have standing in that courtroom. Right. So 999 get crab-canned if you're a state prisoner in all 50 states going into the federal court. That's right. the first So I had to prove that I had a constitutional right at issue, and I had evidentiary support to show that I had standing, that I do have an, a verified action claim for release. Mm-hmm. So in my federal civil rights lawsuit and in my federal petition, I had to show the court's that my constitutional rights were being violated. And with an absence of intervention, I would be denied the relief. So I end up filing my cases, winning the argument before the court. The court issued order order to show causes on both cases separately. So two three general through two, three judge panels, separately, autonomously, completely independent of each other. Each appointed counsel to represent me.
0: The federal and the state, two totally separate cases. Oh,
1: okay. Two, two, no. Two Ninth Circuit cases.
0: Oh, okay. They
1: were both at the Ninth Circuit.
0: Which is federal.
1: So basically it's like this. It's like going to the same liquor store and playing the Powerball Lottery and winning twice.
0: Wow. So you okay. were assigned to a so, entr-
1: yeah, two separate, two separate defense. Once was the one in my federal petition and one on my civil rights lawsuit.
0: Okay, so then you got to turn over the reins. You could stop being your own attorney. You got it to the point where you had an attorney, two attorneys assigned to you. And then yeah. tell us about the day you got released. So this was six years after your first filing. Tell us about the day you, you got released. Who, who authorized it? How did you find out? What was that feeling like of total victory?
1: Well, I then had to bring three other state lawsuits against the parole board in order to get a properly calculated term. Wow. And then, and then they set my term to serve. And even then, they didn't let me out. I had to go back to court after I got out and get that fixed. And that was what you envisioned, where I actually walked into the courtroom on my own and took my position at the defense table and got the district attorney of Los Angeles and the seated superior court judge to agree that I was correct in my legal argument. And then they set aside my original sentence as illegal. And this is almost 20 years later. And then resentenced me correctly.
0: So let me get this right. You got out after 18 years and then they were trying to get, still trying to get you back in the prison system after you were already free, like walking as a civilian and you had to go back and defend yourself. Yes. So that is how strong the prison system wants Black men in the system. It's like even you're out, you've got the two attorneys and then they're still trying to pull you back in, but you defended yourself that one more time. So now I know why you're a motivational speaker. I mean, this story is just so, so motivating because you stayed calm, you studied, you just t- kept taking the next indicated step. So my listeners, if you feel like you have a huge mountain to climb, you just keep doing the next thing and the next thing and you're gonna eventually, if you persist, like like you did, Keith, if it's God's will, prevail. So this is like... Such an incredible testimony of your strength, your character, your connection to your higher power. I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. And what I like is we talked the other day, just a quick catch-up call, and you actually used your, your knowledge and your, your studying of the law to empower some other inmates. Oh, right. who right. help. So let's, let's talk about how you were of service because you were such a great student of the law to some of the other people in prison with you.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of inmates, um, sadly, who were not able to read and write. Um, They functioned the best they could. Their offenses happened. They got arrested. They got sentenced. And then they're really behind the eight ball because they are not able to advocate for their own legal interests. And so the universe would end up bringing a lot of those individuals to me for assistance. Um, whether it's trying to get medical care, mental health treatment, disability accommodation, things like that. And it was a blessing to be able to help others and use some of the knowledge that I was acquiring to you know, shepherd in some justice for them, bring some light into their dark tunnel. And even out here, I see a lot of opportunity to use that. And those opportunities have availed themselves to me, even out here um, dealing with social justice issues within my nonprofit and outside of. Um, i work with other nonprofits, um, kind of like a collaboration. Um, one organization goes, has me going into inside schools and basically taking the position where I am mentoring the youth and how to overcome the stigma that they're carrying because their loved one is incarcerated, Mm -hmm. their brother, their father, their uncle, their um, close, immediate biological or distant relative. And there's a stigma that's associated with that because People think that they themselves are less than because of that. They think that their family is less than because of that. Yeah. And the truth is, they're not. <laughs> um, everybody is flawed. Everybody is imperfect. People make mistakes, but it doesn't mean they need to be thrown away and cast away. Right. And as a result they need to know they have value. They need to know that people understand they're not alone in their pain. Yeah. And what better way of acknowledging that than having someone who is in the trenches, who is in the darkness, who's coming to the light saying, you know what, there still is hope. There still is hope. And you have value and your, your support, your encouragement for your loved one it is invaluable. And not to give up. Keep casting love back into that institution to your loved one. And it does resonate. And it does help fertilize the seeds of rehabilitation in ways that you can never measure. So that's Absolutely. one.
0: You know, that's part of what gave you the drive and the impetus to study the law and get out because of your community on the outside and all the love you felt pouring in. You know, some people, when their loved one goes to jail, they give up on them. And then that makes them more likely to give up on themselves. So I, I think that is such a great message to communicate to the youth that have a loved one in jail. Um, I know we also talked about the movie 13th by Ava DuVernay. And, right. and I highly recommend to my listeners to watch that movie. It's on Netflix right now and it's trending and it's such a great explanation of how the prison system is a billion dollar business and why the system is stacked against black people, especially black men. So it's a it's incredible um, that you faced that journey and that you got out. As a black man in America, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? What is your perception of racism right now in America? Is there a race war happening? Like what's going on in in your experience?
1: I think what's happening is there's more recording Mm -hmm. of injustice than ever before, but it's always been there. It's always been there. I've had, you know, single digits in age. I've had glass bottles thrown at my feet by mm. a pet vehicle from youth yelling the N-word and all kinds of expletives and yelling verbal threats for doing nothing but walking on the street, walking on the side or riding my bike. Um, so these things would happen and this you know and that was in the 60s and the 70s and throughout my life no matter what state i'm in but now that it's being polarized and captivated cap- captured on video on audio and it goes viral on the various platforms of youtube instagram pinterest reddit that people are seeing it because of cell phones, of laptops, webcams. These are being recorded with great frequency now. And the most extreme. And sometimes the past is Oh, you cut out the last sentence
0: cut out. After you
1: said. Yeah, explicit racism and then also the subtle bias the subtle bias.
0: Yeah. Um, like when you walk into a store and they're like looking at you, like, what are you really going to buy that kind of they, subtle yeah. bias?
1: They, go, they need to go straight in the clothes on the rack of the exact row that you're on. Right. Um, when they were behind the counter talking and laughing before you walked in the store. Right. Uh, or you sit on the bus or the train or the subway and the person clenches their purse and moves it to the opposite side or right. wedges it between themselves in the, in the side wall. Mm. they're worried about you stealing their purse or their, their possessions. Um, yeah, you see that. And sometimes you just, you just discount it thinking that ah, it's just, it's just me. It's just me. I'm, I'm seeing something that's really not true. And then it's kind of like living under the airport where you're not so aware that you're in the flight path and it becomes part of the norm.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Then when something really shocking and reprehensible happens, then you go, you know what, it's not okay. It's not okay, it's not okay, it's not okay. And and then it comes back to the surface Mm
0: -hmm.
1: in a really visceral, palatable way. And a lot of people who haven't carried that trauma It looks excessive, it looks disproportionate, but it's been snowballing. And it's been, people have been told, it's okay, let that go, it's okay, let that go. For so long, in so many different ways. Sometimes when it's just a disrespect and sometimes when it costs you your job or or your house or Uh, custody or something that really means something to you and you have to have those tools and have to have skill using those tools otherwise it's going to come out sideways like you've seen and we have seen in recent weeks
0: exactly so I think the difference between now and when you grew up in the sixties and seventies is there are a lot of white people that are more aware and they are wanting to make a difference and make a change and a lot of the Black Lives Matter uh, protests were you know more white people than black people in some cities. So people in Europe are protesting. So I think there is an international solidarity, a solidarity with the black people in America and with this movement. And that is a huge shift from the sixties and seventies. So what guidance can you offer white people to support black people and feeling more empowered and feeling equality in this society? What guidance can you give them? Because a lot of white people are like, I want to help and I want to make a difference, but I don't know how, or I don't know how to be, or what kind of guidance can you offer them?
1: Don't give handouts, give hand-ups.
0: What does that mean?
1: When you're considering somebody, when you, when, you, when you have a need for something, like you're an employer, and you think of the kind of person you want to fill this job, this role, you don't have to reach down into the realm of the unqualified. Right. Right but give consideration to the person who would otherwise be as qualified if they were dealt the hand that the others in competition were. Mm-hmm. Okay. For every black person you see in a commercial, there are thousands of white roles. So the ratio of those being allowed in those and the ratio of those being given a hand up is that, that disproportionality can be cured by being a little bit more, if not empathetic, be a little bit more sympathetic. Mm -hmm. That if you see somebody in equal steed as yourself, you have a bachelor's degree, they have a bachelor's degree. You went to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, some Ivy League school, They went to community college. Being able to check your own inner bias. Mm -hmm. Being able to humble yourself in relation to them, you help level that social playing field. When you see the person get on the bus, get on the subway, get ready to sit down at that movie theater Let them invite them to sit next to you. Mm -hmm. Don't just move the bag. Say, could you please sit here? And mean it. And mean it. (laughs) Be authentic.
0: Yeah. That is a
1: little ways. But these little ways make drastic changes. And everybody's doing.
0: And to treat them like a human being, not like, you know, someone to be feared. Like, I'm not saying there's... Or
1: pity. Or pity.
0: Yeah, or pity. Just equal. And I like what you said, you know, um, affirmative action. That's something that a lot of colleges do. And it's like... Maybe, maybe someone did go to the best East Coast boarding school and somebody went to a public school, but look at, look at the whole, the whole character, look at their college essays, look at their extracurriculars, look at what they're bringing to the table. That's kind of what you're saying, but don't just give a handout just because, oh, we have to get so many minorities in, we'll just let them in. Like people have to still have their, their qualifications. That's what I think you mean by hand up, not hand out, if I'm correct. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Just give people an extra, an extra shot that they wouldn't normally be given. So Great. this talk was amazing. I definitely want to talk to you more about it. I just appreciate you're just, you're the champion. You know, one of my favorite quotes is a champion gets up even when they can't, and that. <laughs> That's what you did. Like you just kept getting up, getting up, getting up until you got out of prison and now you're empowering so many people with your message. So how can people get in touch with you if they want to hire you as a motivational speaker or they want to invo- get more involved in some of your youth projects?
1: Uh, www.keithasummersfoundation.org.
0: Awesome. Well, Keith, Thank you so much for taking time out of your vacation to Martha's Vineyard to spend some time with me and our listeners on the Balanced Beautiful Abundance Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this wonderful podcast so you can hear more incredible guests like Keith Summers. And if you feel this conversation was useful to you, it would mean so much to me if you could share it with a friend you think would benefit from it. So thank you so much for tuning in. Stay tuned for another incredible interview. Thank you, Keith Summers, for your time and your incredible message. And I will look forward to seeing you really soon when you get back to the West Coast.
1: Amen. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You're so welcome. Bye. Who says you can't have it all? I'm proof that you can. You just have to put your life into balance. Too much of anything, money, fitness, socializing... Can overtake your life. When all seven aspects of your life work in harmony, you will achieve the balanced, beautiful, and abundant life you've always dreamed of. Please subscribe to hear more inspiring interviews. Is there someone you know who could benefit from this podcast? Please share this podcast with them. Please review this podcast. Your feedback will help me target your needs and plan for upcoming shows that answer your questions and feature guest speakers that can make a big difference in your life. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Rebecca E. Whitman. Feel free to DM me to book a free balance assessment call. And don't forget, stay balanced, beautiful, and abundant.